We've all now heard the sad news that we've lost one of the UK's greatest um, ever photographers, Brian Griffin, um, and that's a very sad loss for everybody in the in the photography world. Um, Brian had come on the podcast a couple of times, and for me as an individual, he made a very big impression when he came on because I thought I loved his stories, and for me, he was so much more than a photographer. He was basically a visionary and he was such an inventor you know he invented light machines he invented all sorts of things Um, and following his appearance on the podcast actually Brian and I had quite a lot of communication and I visited him several times in in London and he came up to visit me up here a couple of times as well on the island of Anglesey and he was always full of great conversation you know great um, stories not just about photography about everything he was just such I think such a great person and so I will miss him a lot um, like a lot of his um, very good friends. Um, Another thing I always feel about Brian is I feel like he didn't really get maybe the, the biggest platform that he deserved and I often wonder whether that was because he was in fact so creative at his you know in the period he operated in and he was so different and so left field that for some people maybe they just thought he was too strange I don't know but I do believe um that you know the work that he created and in the time that he created there was nothing else like it and I really love for me not just his music work everything he did with the London businessmen because I can't think of one person (laughs) who could go um, and photograph some, you know, businessmen in the city and turn them into works of art, basically. Um, and for me, one of my favourite images um, is his um, the executive, you know, from his bureaucracy series. I just think that's fantastic, those men coming out of the lift. It looks like like it should be a Kraftwerk cover. So we spoke a lot about that, 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 that body of work as well with Brian. And like I say, he was just so full of fantastic stories so um on Sunday 16 we thought to honor Brian and in case anyone hadn't listened to maybe one of his early interviews we're re-releasing um the episode so that you can enjoy it again and and just listen to Brian tell his stories about his his fabulous work And welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast for another week of analogue photography and other such goodness. Oh boy, have we got a show for you this evening. And joining me to help you deal with this wonderful show are my two fantastic co-hosts. Claire, how are you? I'm all right this evening. Thanks, Graham. Really (laughs) excited to be here. I'm glad you specified you're all right this evening, yesterday <laughs> evening, tomorrow evening, who knows. But this evening, you're good. Wonderful. That's as, right. long, as long as we've got you on the good ones, that's all I care about. Uh, and John, how are you doing relative to the rest of the worst days in the week? 
Uh, I think I'll be all right tomorrow evening. Oh. I haven't decided that tonight. <laughs> We've got sad John tonight. Well, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. Um, we are all very excited this evening because we have got a fabulous guest for you. It's always difficult knowing how to introduce somebody, um, and especially somebody who's done quite a lot. So I'm just going to um, to sort of set people up, give you some of the things that most, most stand out. So... Uh, this photographer was uh, awarded the Photographer of the Decade by The Guardian in 1989. Uh, it was awarded Best Photography Book in the World in 1991 by the Barcelona Primavera Photographica. And his cover photo was used on a life special supplement of the greatest photos of the 1980s. So hopefully that's already piqued your uh, interest as we welcome to the show Brian Griffin. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Great. Oh, I'm really happy to be um, uh, amongst you guys that are in the ether somewhere. You know? <laughs> somewhere in the We're ether. Out there. We're in the cloud. Um, that's. It's kind of those things we just listed. Those are some pretty big hits for somebody whose life started in the black country with a plan of being an engineer. Um, what happened? Well. Basically, uh, I worked for the British Steel Corporation and uh, I was a pipework engineering estimator in nuclear power station pipework, a trainee, I have to say, which I would become a fully qualified pipework engineering uh, uh, estimator and the cooling water systems of nuclear power stations when I became 27 years old. And I'd re uh, I, I, I had a girlfriend, actually, who I was very, very fond of, extremely fond of, actually, um, who left uh, the accounts department uh, one floor below me. I was in this big uh, uh, office block, you know, which went on for about 11 floors in Birmingham. And uh, she left me while I was away with my friends in Catolica from the youth club. When I got back, she she'd gone. She she'd gone with the guy who was the um, who was in charge of uh, the garden department at Lewis's department store in Birmingham. <laughs> That's oh. a blow. Uh, it's a real blow. I thought, how could she leave leave me for him? Um, obviously, she enjoyed his sex more than anything. Uh, Not his green me, fingers. <laughs> Not his green fingers, and. Uh, so I was brokenhearted and devastated. I thought, well, I'm going to get out of this life, you know. Uh, and a few years earlier, I'll just be very brief with this. A few years earlier, I'd worked in a factory and um, the man in charge of the shop floor, that is, uh, the foreman, they used to call them, said, have you ever been interested in photography? And uh, I said, no. And uh, he, uh, he said, well, come to the camera club. You might enjoy it, you know, the one of those places that uh, the Royal Photographic Society has an influence on, maybe. And uh, I sort of enjoyed it. So anyway, when it came to the fact that this woman had left me, I decided to go to study photography at Manchester Polytechnic. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really like photography that much, to be quite honest. I didn't think I was any good at it, to be to be quite frank. And uh, I just left it as an escape. I just went as an escape, just a pure escape. I'd reached 21 years old, so I was fairly a mature student in those days. And um, 
I just like packed my bags really, you know, and uh, went to Manchester. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, in a nutshell, it's quite a strong. Is it particularly coming from a really working class area like you did to to make that choice to shift from a good solid career with a future in engineering to go? No, I'm going to go and mm. pursue the arts at Manchester Polytechnic. Um, were you was it a well supported move when you did it, or were you were, were the family not happy with you when you made this choice? Well, as it's normal in uh, family life, uh, the mother the mother likes the son. I was an only child, by the way. Uh, mm. the, the mother likes the son, and the father likes the daughters for some <laughs> unknown reason. Uh, more than the opposite sex, uh, whichever way you look at it. And uh, my mother was quite happy. Uh, but my father was devastated by it. But anyway, uh, they came around after three years of college uh, to fully support me, actually. Uh, mm. But anyway, I, I went to Manchester, and uh, I didn't know if I was any good. Well, actually, I didn't think I was any good because I, I, I had no signals to tell me I was good. Mm. No? Um, and uh, on the first day, I took a photograph of an egg, a, a, an actual natural chicken's egg <laughs> and uh all the students went wow that's incredible you know i was quite surprised actually i said it's only an egg you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but they seemed to think it was good so i started uh on the right way um you know it gave me confidence but then uh, I'll, I'll go very quickly into the beginning of my career um i left in 1972 and I, again, I didn't think I was any good at all. I'm being serious here. I didn't think I was a good photographer. I thought I was extremely average. Uh, some people thought I was good. I didn't think it personally deep down inside. I thought, hmm, maybe I've made the wrong choice. Mm. And uh, it took me a year and a half as a professional, which we go into uh, later maybe, if you want, um, to realise... I could make it as a photographer. It took me 18 months, a year to 18 months to realise that. The first time I realised I was any good in photography, after all those years before I went to college, when I was in college, and for a good year after leaving college. Around that time, what was, what was perceived as good photography? What was in the public eye that you were seeing a lot of? Well, uh, I, I first... Uh, Went to college and in the public eye were obviously Snowden, uh, was obviously Bailey. They were the two main, and maybe Litchfield. Mm. Uh, when I, as I progressed through college and when I left college, the uh, the photographers gallery started uh, one year mm. before I left in seventy one, I think. And also there was a great influx beginning uh, to uh, come from America, influx of books that is. You know, Gary Winogrand, Lee Friedlander, you know, all those mm. guys. And, um, I mean, the only thing that we, I remotely, well, I did remotely, where, where I found was interesting was uh, obviously Bill Brandt was, and, and Cecil Beaton, where mm. I learned were better photographers than the Baileys and the, uh, and uh, the Snowdens and, um, and the, uh, the Litchfields. And then, um, Tony Ray Jones cropped up in my final year uh, with a day off. Of course, he died, actually. He died at the age of 31, I think. 
Uh, he, we had a lecture by um, a very famous man at the time because he was he was uh, the uh, was he the editor? I can't remember uh, of Creative Camera, uh, mm. Bill J. You know. Um, yeah. By the way, I've been buying uh, a magazine called Camera Owner before I went to college. I was conversant with sort of what was like happening. Uh, there was also, actually, I remember now, a decent photographer in uh, in Britain called Raymond Moore. Very interesting, uh, very interesting landscape photographer who is not really, he's, he's quite unheralded apart from us few guys who realised he was very good. Uh, so, therefore, I left college with uh, with the sort of influence of... Uh, of, of the Americans, you know, with their books coming over. Uh, but really, I didn't – I left to be a really hard-nosed professional photographer. I was determined to to uh, make a success of being mm. a professional photographer, and that was going to be my career. I was going to earn my living from it. I wasn't going on a begging bowl, which – existed after 72 the arts council existed through barry lane was the officer i was going to go for that i was going to make my own way in photography so after i left photography school i went and worked in a steel works um i got no money i mean i didn't come from a family of any money i mean we lived down a back street two of two down terraced house uh, get the bath off the wall, put it down in front of electric fire and pour the kettle of hot water in, you know, that was the bath. Mm -hmm. And then mum would get in after me and dad would get in last, you know. <laughs> and uh, he had the dirty water, dad. Uh, um, yeah, so... That boy didn't like you as much. <laughs> perhaps, he, perhaps he didn't like me as much. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, to, to set the scene, uh, I, I decided to become a professional photographer, so I had to start walking the streets. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like now I, I'm doing this Kickstarter. I have to keep at it, at it. I mean, I'm a very hardworking man. I'd like to, to say that right now. I'm not lazy. I'm extremely hardworking. And... Uh, What's that? It's because when... Go on. What's no, that? What hard work? <laughs> no, yeah. I was going because when you set off to become a professional photographer, I think I'm, I'm right. you sort of headed off down to London with the idea in mind of getting into fashion photography, but then went actually and got a job in corporate photography. Was that because you saw that as the more practical, sensible route forward at the time, or, or was it because you thought, no, this is the thing that's more interesting to me? I was actually deflated that it was corporate photography, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was the bottom rung. I was going to, like, landscape was really the bottom, probably. In creative photography, that is speaking, yeah. as, as a creative, professional creative outlet uh, of photography. But, but corporate photography was really, really at the bottom. Mm. But I've been looking at a magazine whilst I was uh, over the years in um, – in uh, art college and it was management today now management today seemed to use interesting photography even then in the 60s in the front covers were done by a, a photographer called lester bookbinder who was who was another another forgotten photographer incredibly talented incredibly creative uh, still live photographer uh was uh, and inside seemed to be okay quite interesting um john claridge i think was the main photographer mm. then 
who's still around. And uh, hello, John, a very, a very good man. Um, and so, therefore, uh, I was sent by Leicester Bookbinder because I, I gave up in the end after about walking for three or four months. Mm. I advertised, uh, what was advertised was a, 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 an assistance job. Uh, with Leicester Bookbinder, which I thought was, I was quite delighted with that, at least if you're going to work for someone, work for a real master. So I went to see him, and he looked at my college portfolio and said, no, you're not going to have the assistant job. You're not going to work with me, which was quite a quite a, <laughs> a thing to say to me. I was, oh. And he said, I'm going to phone up someone now. And he phoned up Roland Schenk, who is the art director of management today, which had offices just uh, off... Uh, of uh, Oxford Street, and um, I went to visit Roland, and Roland said, I think you're the new Robert Frank. So all of a sudden, <laughs> me thinking I was, yeah, I was okay, and I wasn't particularly great, to thinking I was, oh, I'm the new Robert Frank, <laughs> <laughs> which was a little bit exaggerated to say, thank God, Roland. I mean, Roland worked with Robert Frank. He worked with Robert Frank because Roland Schenk was the art director of Do magazine. Do magazine is a Swiss magazine, and it, it always used very creative photography in the back section. It tended to show a portfolio of work by a very famous photographer, which Robert Frank was. He was Swiss, you know. Rob, Roland worked with him. He'd come over to England. He'd uh, he'd become a, a, a tutor at Norwich Art College. He was a, a painting tutor because he was a very good artist, inspired by Oskar Kokoschka, who was a, a very famous Austrian um, expressionist. And uh, and he'd come down to London to work with, uh, to, to work on uh, Haymarket Publishing because the man at the time was Tom Woolsey. Now, Tom Wolsey was a man that had uh, become very famous. He was a great magazine art director in Britain in the late 60s, middle to late 60s. He invented, he actually art directed a magazine called Man About Town, or uh, Town, it became Town Magazine, where a lot of our best photographers worked on. I mean, even Don McCollin worked on it, actually. I remember him in there. Uh, but Town eventually closed, and only management today existed of the great magazines at the time although they had other magazines in a market it's it sounds like m what management today uh, were drawn to in your work uh, and it is the fact that you your style you see things differently um and it sounds like that's that was an approach that they taken in the past they, they weren't looking for a conventional straight-on approach to what they were doing. They were looking for somebody who was going to bring something different and unique to their pages to lift what could potentially be, I would imagine, quite a tedious um, experience for people reading through it if it was just very boring shots. Um, where where did the way you look at the world and put things together come from? Because, again, it seems like one of those things that it just appeared when you went and studied photography this artistic side um that i don't know uh, whether you'd been a frustrated poet or something before when you were still working in engineering or not but um where did that spring from was it a thing you discovered in yourself that you hadn't even known existed before that's a very very good point because i've tried i've tried all my life to figure out where it came from. I mean, obviously, I'm quite conversant in the history of especially painting and sculpture. Uh, uh, I know 
a bit about the history of film. If I, I mean, I, I, my, my, my interests are the arts, really, and the history of art with certain specialisms. And anyway, I, I won't go into that. Um, I tried to figure it out when I did when I did the book, which is associated as Volume One of this series with Dowie Lewis in uh, 2012 or 2013, one of those years. Um, already the years are becoming foggy. <laughs> um, and that's quite recent compared to the book. Uh, I had noticed that my aunt, which is my mother's sister, and my mother had a great sense of design in their happy snaps, you know, looking through the box camera, uh, mm. looking through the throwaway camera, looking through the inst Instamatic. And... Uh, they had a real, a real uh, feeling for the aesthetics of composition, etc. And I was rather shocked because I'd never realised that until I looked at my mother's work and my mother's sister's work very closely. Um, I actually just rose from within me this 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 ability as a photographer, and I've tried to to work out, tried to. Are you born with it? Is it in you? Is it right? It just needs to be brought out. It needs a needs a catalyst, you know, to to bring it out. Something did something rise out of me like a spirit or something when I when I got can we say intensely interested in photography after leaving well at college mm -hmm. and after leaving college. I, I've tried to work that out because I, I had no signals of it as a as a child or, I, or as a teenager. I mean, I was quite creative, I think, you know, a sort of person, but uh, I don't know where it came from, and I'm fascinated by it. It certainly seems like it, it was, as you said, it was latent there waiting for the right opportunity to express itself, and it also seems like, your particular eye, your particular visual style, the way that you work, um, is one of the best cases I can think of, really, of your style being perfect for the moment. Because it seems like you did the work, certainly for um, your corporate work to begin with, and then where that led to in the way that you wanted to do it. And rather than trying to do what was the done thing, you did your thing, and people came to you and oh yes that's fantastic um because it led you to so many other places which again you wouldn't when you start with what you described as the lowest the second lowest rung just above landscape photography but when you start in corporate photography you, you don't think oh this is going to lead to me taking pictures of some of the no. biggest stars out there no i mean i i didn't completely answer your question i apologize for that was I, I thought, oh, God, I've got to go back into the... I've, and I've been in offices and mm. workplaces since the age of 16 because my mum and dad, they uh, they chucked me out of school at 16. I couldn't do my A-levels or anything uh, because they couldn't afford me to keep me at school. I needed to earn money for the family. However meagre wage I would get, it, fuck, it's like £4, 10 shillings a week or something at 16. Um uh, so I, I was thrown out of school by mom and dad. Uh, but all everything that happened to me prior, obviously the area I came from has a great visual wit, has a great visual uh, comedic side to it, uh, the black country does, mm. you know. Um, and uh, the engineering, when I 
started to work as a photographer, and especially in later years when I got a studio, it all came into play. It, it worked. Everything I thought I was wasting my life doing between 16 and uh, 21, i.e. Uh, engineering, all those factors, all those meaningless talents I, I now possess, like I was brilliant in mathematics because I had to be good at maths, uh, all the knowledge of engineering I knew helped me invent light machines in the 80s. Every single minute of what I thought was a waste of life actually came in handy in the end. It was incredible. Um, but no, I did. I, I, sorry to interrupt you. I, I didn't like, I did not like to go in. I mean, I thought, oh, well, I better make a go of it. So I wanted to be a fashion photographer. I wanted to be like David Bailey, you know, or uh, Cecil Beaton or, or Norman Parkinson eventually. But uh, nah, I ended up in... question, Brian. Um, yeah, of course. You know, you were saying earlier that um, you had, it sounds like you, you were doubting yourself and you said, um, what, what was the exact moment? Was it when you were hired for the magazine or was it later when you thought to yourself, do you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm actually quite good and I'm, I'm going to be, I can be successful can you can you pinpoint that moment or i can yeah i can i can yeah um it was I, well david britain uh, who was uh, an editor of uh, creative camera he said it happened to me in the april of 73 now i'd left in the june of 72 photography mm -hmm. college and this moment it happened to me in uh, April 73. I always believe, because I've actually sort of titled the image, and it's like in so many galleries or whatever, in uh, uh, something like uh, 84. And when any assistant has joined me, I said, you've got, now I'm building you up to it. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've got to, uh, you've got to take a world famous photograph within 18 months of leaving photography college uh, which is a quite a tall order for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, no pressure. And, it, and, it, and then and david britain said you took it like nine months after leaving college so i say to an assistant you're going to take a world famous photograph nine months out of after <laughs> leaving photography college anyway what happened was that i was doing a, a an assignment for roland shank on management today for people coming into london commuting uh, mm. you know people on the tube people in their car people on buses people on trains basically people on cabs especially cabs um london bridge was very famous for the crowds walking across from london bridge station to bank you know mm -hmm. or the city of london it's like you know the crowds so obviously i thought well i, I mean I've, I've got such basic thought patterns I don't, we'll talk about that later i thought well i've got to take a photograph of the crowds going across london bridge so i, I hailed a black cab down and I asked him to drive it five miles an hour or whatever across London Bridge, you know, going from north to south to get yeah. all the people coming from uh, London Bridge Station. Uh, I've been looking at a lot of, uh, uh, watching and seeing a lot of films. I, I, I watched all, the whole of the German, or well, most of it, especially cinema, silent cinema, after I left college. And... Uh, I'd taken this photograph where it looks like Metropolis, very, very Metropolis. Obviously, yeah. it's the most famous German expressionist film, uh, silent movie. And I took it and I saw, and I, I just almost fainted. I felt this, I've taken one of the greatest photographs on earth. 
oh my god <laughs> oh my god i was like almost I, I mean i don't actually pee my pants you know but it was, <laughs> oh, it was congratulations <laughs> <laughs> but it was like a feeling of that which i had mm. i'll tell you about a feeling like that that happened in the 80s i just couldn't believe it I just could not believe I'd taken that picture, which has ended up in the V&A, ended up in museums, which is one of the great street photographs of London of that period, mm. I think. It's it's a stunning photograph. I mean, it really is an absolutely stunning photograph On in terms of, as you said, it's the cinematic nature of it and just in the very pure artistic nature, the the, the, the framing, the negative space, everything about it is kind of spectacular. Um, and that picture... It got you a lot of attention, didn't it, at the time? Yeah, well, it was taken on. Um, it was taken on, actually on a rangefinder. I think I had a Leica, a really old Leica from about 71, 60, 79 to eighty-one. Was it a, a three? I, I forgot which one it was, or a four. Can't remember now. You know, a rangefinder. Um, yeah, that got me a lot of attention. The next photograph. Well, quite, quite. I don't know which photograph to take next. Actually, <laughs> you, you carry on. Tell, you, you, you prompt me. Actually, I don't know where to start. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Actually, I mean, you've been told, so you were given the advice, or it sounds almost like the instruction, like you need to take uh, a world class photo within the first eighteen months after leaving your your education. Like, okay, you've done that. What next? Like, when you've done when you've done that once, I would imagine it's fifty percent. Oh, great! I can do this. I've taken this amazing picture. I've achieved what I needed to. Oh, right. And fifty percent. Um, what if that's it? What if that's my one world class photo? No, I, I had another. Uh, what's the right not not um, uh, epitome? Uh, I've got the right word now. I could think of the most brilliant English word to fit in now, but I can't. I can't think of it tonight. Um, I had re I spent a long well a long time it's only a matter of months I mean like like um, trying to figure out how to photograph these businessmen I couldn't figure out I mean there was uh, there was in America there was Arnold Newman who was the great portraitist in the states mm. I saw he was sort of the competition I'd set myself I wanted to be as good if not better than him actually to be honest because you have to set your own private goals inside deep inside not boast about it but keep them inside to fulfill yourself to see that you're progressing forward and uh i, I, I had an epiphany epiphany that's the right word i think um i realized from that the businessmen or the executives had to be like actors mm. and their environments i.e., their offices or whatever had to be the stage so they were the actors uh, in their own stage. Obviously, I had to display uh, objects or whatever, or positions or whatever it might be, or environment, whatever, that echoed or that that that, that was appropriate to, to their function as businessmen, as uh, their industries or whatever. Once I'd found that, I was off. Mm. I was off. I was like a... a, a I, I'm not going to say where I, 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 we have an expression in uh, photography, but I won't explain. I won't. Explain. I won't it's a bit too dirty. Uh, it's, it, 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 I just went. Uh, I've got it. I've got my. I've got it. I've got a style that no one else has ever used. I've sorted it out. So from then on, most photographs of businessmen in offices became like 
a second nature for me. All I got to use was my imagination in what they did and, you know, what they did, meaning what I got them to do. That's all and I would, needed. When you went to photograph the yeah. these executives, were they willing to pose in, the, in these setups that you were imagining? Well, I had to use, I had to become intelligent, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, apart from a clicker, apart from uh, getting exposure correct, which wasn't easy in those days. And with uh, using the films and well, anyway, blah, 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 was I had to be able to control those people. And I realized that it was their opportunity to become semi-famous, quite famous, mm -hmm. that they desired to be so much in the leading management magazine well, it was the only one at the time, the mid-70s, whatever. Uh, they wanted to be the man there, the woman there, you know, uh, mostly men it was in those days. And uh, I could, could manipulate them because they decided to be photographed so much. They would do mm. anything to be in, you know, in the magazine. And uh, so, yeah, I used that as, as my power, as my uh, controlling force in those situations, portraying them. And then I applied my my ingenuity, my uh, my my re my rationale. I.e., they were the actors. This was my stage. This was their stage, rather, for me to to have fun with. At that time, sort of around the same time as you were really starting to find your feet with all this and find your your style and the way you could approach this, um, you also went off in another sort of quite divergent direction with the work you did in Moscow in 1974, um, which is sort of very distinct and separate from everything else that you've done, really. How did that come about? Well, I think I could tell you on this broadcast exactly what was going through my head. Uh, which I, I don't really say that often. And I'll, I'll give you some private, my private thoughts at the time. Um, I came from a working class background, which is, okay, you're all working class. It's a bit like, you know, mm. down a bit of back street, you know, no hot water, like, get the hot water in the kettle. Um, but I was virgin on a communist at that time, I think. Uh, I was certainly a socialist because I saw the treatment of all the families in the surrounding streets, in, in my, well, my friends, mom and dads, my mom and dad, how the bosses treated them at that time, and um, how my parents were so subservient to the, to their bosses. You know, they really sort of were almost meek and mild towards them. You know, they were. I didn't like it. It made my skin crawl, really. Um, and uh, I became quite socialistic, I suppose. <coughs> Excuse me. And I started, eventually, I don't know how I ended up doing it, but I started to read about Burgess, McLean and Philby, those the Cambridge trio, about the spires. I really did. And uh, <coughs> I was really interested in getting somewhere really basically quite difficult at the time. I wanted to go to uh, Cuba. I wanted to go to uh, um, Albania. I couldn't get into those places. But I could get into Moscow, uh, which suited my sensibilities at the time and my, and, and my reading and my interests, shall we say, to the side. And uh, so that's why I ended up there. And I almost wanted them take hold of me and grab me and 
and leave me there and have me there you know what i mean yeah, because, a reasonable chance that might have happened in 74 uh, it was re very reasonable chance actually it's very good that you mentioned that it was a very reasonable chance it was a really dark period of the cold war it was mm -hmm. at that time the um the, the new uh, the, the the march that i went on the october celebrations whatever it was the last time they actually had nuclear weapons i believe parading through moscow uh there were big big uh interballistic missiles whatever you know but anyway uh, yeah i went to moscow because i was like quite fond of communism at that time it's really noticeable that that work that that body of work is very different just in terms of style than and it's much more candid street photography and it's it's wonderful stuff and the pictures are, are super interesting and you definitely get the feel from looking at them that you were that the photographer that you were on the side of the people you were taking pictures of you know it, it, at least you were taking pictures which if if the powers that be had seen them probably wouldn't got you thrown in a gulag which would have been a good thing or a bad thing rather um but obviously you did come back uh, thank goodness um and carried on with your work for the the manager magazine um and i think it's quite unsurprising looking at the work you were doing with these corporate people and making these amazing pictures using people who <laughs> were probably some of the more mundane individuals in the world <laughs> it's that uh, if you can do that with business managers what could you possibly do with pop stars and rock stars and uh and actors and so on so did that just transition did you just start getting people approaching you because they'd seen what you'd done and said look please can you work your magic here certainly the magazine art directors had felt that way about me because i did branch i did work for a lot of a variety of magazines as the 70s went on prior to doing the music stuff but i i found that most of my my, my thoughts that I've had, like the the big moments, like a, a career trajectory, like a career change, a, a photo, a subject matter change, whatever, uh, in photography, are very very basic thoughts. They like, like I come from, I, I lived, I came from Stocking Street. That was the name of my street, and we lived at Number One. As if I came from Stocking Street, I was like a very, very basic, obvious thoughts, but the most obvious thoughts the last thing you ever think of you know you try to use all your intelligent brain to come up with masterful ideas um so what happened was that i was photographing men in suits primarily because mm -hmm. uh, businessmen i mean it was proliferation of businessmen business ladies hardly existed in those days uh, unfortunately which is awful i know but uh, <laughs> anyway that's what my job was to photograph these men and uh, they all dressed in suits which i think a, a man in a suit looks amazing actually um yeah. uh aesthetically because yeah. they become almost like in the nude in a sense or they look you don't notice the clothing of the people you, you you're interested in the character it doesn't speak loudly out from an image um it it, it descends back it, it just uh, sits back in and the action becomes more important anyway uh, i was looking at the bands in around 77 whatever it just post punk after the sex pistols which were anything but in suits the the punks uh was like people the bands were dressing themselves in suits 
It was incredible. So I thought to myself, why don't I go and try and get an album cover to do or some rock photography because they're dressed in the same things as my businessmen are, you know. <laughs> so I took myself around to Stiff Records because I thought Elvis Costello was there at Stiff Records, but in fact he'd left. I didn't realise he'd left a few weeks earlier because uh, Dave Robinson and, uh, and Jake Rivera owned Stiff Records. Jake Rivera left for... Um, for Radar Records while Dave Robinson stayed there. He stayed to look after the because they had Ian Drury, Reckless Eric, Lena Lovich, uh, The Damned, they had all those people. And uh, Elvis Costello was their big artist. So I went to see to the, the record label that Elvis and he'd left. But Dave Robinson really liked my work and he gave me an album cover to do. So that started uh, started the journey really uh, for me. Um, a, a nice, interesting side issue to that is that I didn't have any lights. I didn't mm -hmm. possess any lighting or anything at the time. Uh, and I used to use the South Bank uh, underneath the Hayward Gallery and uh, next to the Royal Festival Hall as my outdoor studio. It was very open then, you know, none of this sort of uh, – it's all boarded up now around those concrete columns. And uh, that was my studio uh, with natural light. Um, uh, as a side issue, that is, by the way. But I did actually use a, use a studio in the end when I photographed Iggy Pop, of course, which came a bit later in the 70s. So what was your first album cover? Graham Parker's Parkerilla. Uh, it was for Graham Parker and the Rumour that were a band then. They still exist today. Uh, and uh, it was for, uh, called the Parkerilla. It was a double live album with a gatefold sleeve. I had always adored the work of Barney Bubbles. Not knowing who the hell he was, I wasn't that well first in the music industry, but I'd seen these little lion drawings in the NME, because I got the NME virtually every week, or maybe not, maybe, well, quite regularly, and uh, there were these lion drawings for a, for a man called Johnny Moped. He was a punk artist on Chiswick Records, and uh, I love the line drawings. Anyway, Dave Robinson got me to do um, <coughs> Graham Parker, uh, Parker Willis live album. It's a double album. Uh, he, he's like a he's like a werewolf on the front, underneath uh, the Hayward Gallery, mm. and uh, <coughs> which is quite weird, isn't it? And and also my studio was using the light, the the natural light was my bedroom. <laughs> Uh, I always used my bedroom in those days and the outdoor space below the Hayward Gallery. And <clears throat> and Dave Robinson said, oh, I want to introduce you to the art director of this album, Graham Parker and the Parkerilla, Parkerilla, that is. And it was this guy, it was Barney Bobbles, this guy that I'd love these illustrations in the NME. And then, so I said, I want you to do a book for me. You, you must do a book. And he came round to my home and, uh, well, my rented flat. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, I said, I'd like you to illustrate my book by using line drawings to illustrate how I feel about the photographs in the book. And um, he, we sat down and we, talk, we discussed each photograph, which is in Brian Griffin, copyright 1978. Obviously, I did that book in 78. And uh, he, you can see his line drawings depicting how I felt and how he 
how he depicted out how I felt, sorry, uh, next to each of the images in that book, if you've got it. And uh, and I uh, I paid for it to be printed. I mean, it's only a couple of staples and cheap printing. Um, and I'll always remember about photo books is that when they come, your first copy of it, please smell it. You know, you smell it. I sat in bed. <laughs> I sat in bed and buried it in my in my in my face to smell the aroma from that book. And I'll never forget the aroma. I think it might have sold one copy or something like that. <laughs> so I had 499 of them left in, uh, in the late 70s. And I stored them away for years and years and years. And I got them out again in nine, around, 19, uh, around 2000, 2003. Uh, and I've been you know, like selling them ever since, really. Mm. It's the I'm just looking at the work of Barney Bowles at the moment, and as yet it's not a name that I was familiar with at all. But then when you see the work, you go, "Oh yeah, that's that's what the seventies looked like." That's his work is kind of just synonymous with it because it was so um, ever present. I think in so much of the media, wasn't it? He, his stuff is just kind of uh, yeah. It looks he's incredibly a genius. Mm. He's a genius, basically. He's basically a genius. Uh, and, and obviously, you're in the 70s now, so this is what uh, Black Country uh, Dada is about. And it deals with lots of issues. And it deals with one of the major issues is uh, me getting to know Barney Bubbles and then working with him uh, over from, I don't know, late 77 or whatever it was, up until um, he killed himself in uh, 83. Yeah. So you worked with him, so you worked with him throughout the entire period, on and off, obviously. On on and off, he became like my brother because I I told you earlier that I don't have any sisters or brothers, and he was like my brother really, and um, I I did uh, power my book power with him. I did uh, my um, newspaper in nineteen eighty three in um, in uh, London by night in the photographers gallery. Uh, he did my newspaper, Paint Your Windows White, or Why, Why. Um, he, uh, I did some album covers with him, and uh, we, yeah, we. we I, I, as I, as our, my career progressed and his career obviously progressed, I lit some of his uh, pop promos, and uh, when I got my studio, uh, he became like my like my brother. Mm. Um, I lost him, unfortunately. Uh, he just decided to take his life, which was which was absolutely heart wrenching for me, actually. <laughs> but that's all covered in the book, and there's lots more covered in the book, actually. Um, well, your your time, did, yeah. the 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 seventies and into the eighties, because it, as I said earlier, it does seem like. Well, you were talking about the fact that oh, bands are starting to move into suits and stuff like that, and your your aesthetic, your artistic eye, it seems like you were made for the new romantics to roll onto the scene and just kind of go, yep, I'm here racing for you. Um, and, you know, so much of the music of the 80s just seems perfectly set for you to come and, and be there. And, I mean, you worked with so many people and, and you know, your album covers. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not even going to try and guess how many different album covers you've done at this point. I don't know whether you know. I mean, I know you were inducted into was it the album cover hall of fame a few years ago for your work but 
Um, you work with um, sort of very notably Depeche Mode, um, and Echo and the Bunny Men. I know you're doing um, postcards with both of those guys, um, both those bands for as part of the Kickstarter. But um, I mean, Kate Bush, which is, as far as I'm concerned, is the beginning and end of all conversations, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so many other people. Um, and also, I, I have to mention this because again, it's another picture which really leapt out to me because it's somebody who I hugely am a fan of. Uh, a wonderful picture of Douglas Adams as well. Um, but <clears throat> you, yeah. were, you were moving in some fairly crazy circles in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, go on. Sorry, I, have I interrupted you? No, no. I was just going no, no, to ask no. how that was for somebody yeah. <laughs> to, be, to be living in that world, given what your background was. It was. I mean, you have to – I mean, this is also illustrating the book – I mean, I, I lead you into this in a sense because obviously I went to, I did a lot of things. I was going to America quite a lot in the late 70s. I was working on Esquire magazine, mm. um, Rolling Stone magazine. So, you know, I, I was broadening my horizons, one could say. Um, and uh, I'd started to think in terms of uh, of getting a studio of my own. I really, really almost craved for one, really. So I found one down in the East End. Well, a lady called Suzanne Thomas found one for me. She was working with me at the time. I had a small flat in Acton and uh, uh, worked out of that place. And uh, we found a studio down here in Rotherhide Street, which was very cheap and very suitable. We eventually, in the mid-80s, moved to a bigger studio in the same building. But anyway, we got this studio in 1980. And I was approached also by uh, an advertising represent, uh, uh, agent, photographer's agent in advertising. But what I developed in the 80s was everything that had made me... Uh, sorry, that I'd learned in engineering. I got a brain. I got an engineering brain. You know, I got a brain for mathematics. You know, I, I was a very bright man with numbers and all that sort of stuff. Um, I I developed how to use the analog camera, with, you know, the Hasselblad, namely, because I got an Hasselblad when I started to do Iggy Pop. I'd done Joe Jackson on 35mm OM1 camera, uh, Olympus. All my album covers were, were 35mm until I did Iggy Pop when I got myself my first Hasselblad. And um, I realised the, the, the possibilities with that. Uh, I, I enjoyed, or well, I've met over recent times, actually, <laughs> if it's possible to meet him, um, uh, Dwayne Michaels, and I was always interested in the way he did double exposures mm. in a very fundamental way he was, really. But I saw it being, to taking it into a, 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 can we say, a more sophisticated area, for, for, forgive me for saying that, but, I mean, he was a good, I'm not trying to criticise his work, he was excellent. And I developed, I wanted to take photographs that I could not see that I was like facing the subject, facing the situation that I was confronted with inside the studio. And the photograph I was going to take did not exist. It did not even exist in terms of 
uh, his structure within the studio, like it, its end result. But it wasn't like looking at Joe Bloggs tying his shoe up there, take a picture, Joe Bloggs tying his shoe up. It just did not exist. It only existed on film. That was the only place it existed, both obviously in Polaroid, the back of the Asselblad, or on film. I wanted to take photographs that were just inside my head that were that did not exist in reality. Mm. And as you say, I mean, let's take, for instance, let's treat your, uh, your example of Douglas Adams. Let's take that. Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, basic fall pattern, well, I'm going to do something with planets, I think. Um, I'm going to do something, you know, extraterrestrial or whatever. Um, and the planet's out in the, in the cosmos. So I get um, a sheet of uh, perspex, uh, i.e. the model maker I used at the time, was lived very close to my studio. I said, can you cut a circle to fit over a human head in the perspex, clear perspex sheet? So he cuts, you know, it's probably a quarter of an inch purse, but maybe it's going to stand quite, it might even be oh, three, like just under half an inch thick. I, I can't quite remember. And he cut the circle. And then, of course, he got the sandpaper or emery paper, you know, this, the, to emery the, the side of the circle that he cut. So therefore, when tungsten light or flash light, whatever, passed through the thickness of the perspex to that circle, it would like a glow, the circle would glow because the light couldn't get through. It would glow all the, the serrations in the circle. And then I got a, a dozen or so table tennis balls and uh, I fitted this contraption, this uh, this uh, perspex sheet over the top of Douglas Adams' head. I then, I then got a, 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 a filter to put in the camera, a starburst. Remember the old starburst? Mm -hmm. And, and I put like a little bit of grease from the side of my nose on the starburst filter because we always used the grease on the side of our, you know, just your finger and your grease inside your nose. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with nose grease. <laughs> yeah, nose grease, as you know quite well. And um, we, I put that filter on the front of the camera. So therefore, his eyes would like have a, if you look closely, his eyes have got like a starburst in them. And also it created... Can we say flare? You see flare also going across the image as well, like shafts of flare. I lit it with tungsten light, I think, and I think I might have put a flash spot on them. I can't quite. I mean, it's been such a long time ago. I mean, talking 30, 34 years or whatever ago. Um, and uh, I asked to put them in there. And then my assistant, which was Stuart Graham at the time, went behind the set, behind Douglas, that is, and got his hands full of table tennis balls. And then I would I'd have the, the tungsten light on it, plus flash light on the doggers. I'd say, one, two, three, throw the table tennis balls. And we'd throw the table tennis balls on top of the perspex sheet. And they bounced. Oh. You see them bouncing and that, you know. And I would say they tra the tra flash trapped them. And then I would take the camera. Off the off the tripod. So I always photographed. I always photographed everything apart from obviously Russia in the early seventies and, and one or two other things. But certainly in the eighties, whatever. And there's the late seventies. Uh, take the camera off the tripod and go over 
take the back off the camera, wind the film, not the film, so you wind the camera on, put the back back on the Hasselblad, still the sheet of the, the, the frame of film from Douglas's shot, and point it down to, uh, I forgot what the paper was called now, like a velveteen paper. You bought it in rolls, velvet paper on the floor, and I put some more table tennis balls on the floor and photograph them, you know, which would then double expose on top of, top of the image. Yeah, and that was like, a, and I did that about uh, 20, 24 times. <laughs> yeah. Do you, I mean, is that a part of the process that you enjoy? Because a, a lot of your um, pictures uh, involve elements of construction of one sort or another, whether you're stacking chairs around someone or, or whatever it may be. There's There's a lot going on in a lot of your pictures. Do you enjoy that side of things? Well, looking back through my photographs, certainly from way back in the 80s, not so much the 70s, but certainly the 80s, and even now, more so even now, um, I like sculpture. I use a lot of sculptural forms in my work, actually. I actually do still lives that are like mm -hmm. little sculptures I make, you know, build mm -hmm. up. I use sculptural form quite a lot in my work, Um but I, I went on uh, and I developed like nickel-elastic I used to use for shafts of light. So we have to remember it's analog photography. <laughs> so you stretch the nickel-elastic across the image or whatever, like look at a picture I took of John Fox or look at a picture I did of King Sonny a Day. They're great examples of using nickel-elastic. And, uh, and who would ever think a nickel-elastic would, would – I mean, now they just go, well, you'll get fully sharp to do that, you know, wherever you want to do it. But I use nickel elastic for in a lot of my pictures to produce <laughs> shafts of light emanating from people, emanating towards people, you know. Um, and then I, I, I learned how to I, – I, actually, I was approached one night by the Magic Circle. They, they, a man came up to me from the Magic Circle. I was somewhere. I can't remember where I was. And he said, we'd like you to give a lecture in the Magic Circle because I, I, I learned how to throw light. You know, I could throw throw light into into the foreground or put light into the background. I knew how to, in a photograph, how to throw light way back in the distance or bring it right forward. Um, and they were interested in how I did that. Obviously, it's a double exposure in a technique I used because uh, – Again, I want to stress this is all done in the camera. It's not done on a computer. Um, so they were in the Magic Circle were interested in how I did that. I don't know. No, they never got me around in the end. Probably forgot, lost my number or something. Uh, and then I, I started to get really complex. Um, in fact, I uh, started to develop really sophisticated uh, machines. I started in a simple way of going back to – I never thought that I was captain of the school chess team, the grammar school team, that chess would be really important, could come back into my life in the 1980s. If you look at an album cover called uh, Mirror Moves by the Psychedelic Furs, I <laughs> developed a double exposure system by constructing a, a chessboard where all the, the white squares – did not exist. They saw through them. And then the black squares were painted matte, you know, and uh, where you just move this chessboard exact distance to the left or to the right, photograph a person, 50% of a person by 
the first exposure, lift the back off, wind the, wind the camera on, put the back back on, and then move the, the chessboard exact width to the left or the right and photograph the other 50% of the person. And you can see that technique in uh, Mirror Moves by the Saito first. I explained that in, the, in Black Country Dada, the book. And then I got really sophisticated where I would produce, I just want to, I'll just finish off with this. Mm. This one's a very complex one. Where I had persuaded an advertising agency at the time, I had my persuasive powers, <laughs> and uh, I will now tell you what to do. Um, they had this very, very big advertising campaign for Philips. In fact, I built a house on it. In fact, the, the fee shows you how big it was. Um, and uh, when I built a light machine for them, they wanted, like, you saw a, a, a CD player inside a car on the, in the dashboard of a car, and there were all lights coming from the CD player out, you know, coming out in like a vortex out towards the camera or certain electronic things happen. Anyway, light patterns happened in these photographs. Mm. And uh, I developed a system where I used a, a linear electric motor based on a linear electric motor where you would photograph, say, the dashboard of the car uh, in the studio, just simple dashboard with all its dials and there was the things in there. And you'd put it on, on, get it right on Polaroid, obviously you'd experiment on Polaroid, getting the exposure right, and then make, say, 50 sheets of 5.4 film um, exposed with just the dashboard on, but not developed, kept in the dark sides. And then you would put that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I'm just trying to think how I did it now. <laughs> um, and then um, I would then, uh, let me think how I did it now. God, remember, uh, let me just think. So complex, I can hardly remember it. Um, I need to travel from thing bob to thing bob. Uh, then I, I, on a light box, I can even remember partly it on a light box down the end of it. Uh, I invented a uh, a system of rails, a system of rails coming towards the camera, and uh, and on the light box there had a universal joint attached to it, like a normal light box, you know, ten eight light box or twenty sixteen or whatever. It's so long ago that I could do it universally. In other words, you could go in any angle towards the camera, away from the camera, you know, like you have a universal tripod head. It would just go in any any way at all. So and then I, I would travel travel this 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 light box down the um down the system, down the rails towards my camera. And of course it would I'd get the exact right angle of it correct you know to come down to to put to, to put on the on the on the film of the dashboard of the car the, the travel of the of the lights from the from the um uh, from the cd player you know i'd get it exactly at the right angle you know, obviously by positioning the light box and the light box would travel electric motor with a with a linear electric motor you know with a variable variable electric um uh, you know, power being put mm. onto it so it would come fast or go slow. So if I wanted the exposure to be very light, like hardly 
just a fraction of it, say like in the distance, like a light is in the distance. It would come very quickly towards the camera, like ooh, come towards the camera. And it, when I wanted it to be very slow down a fraction, I'd turn the electric power down, the motor down. It would come slowly towards the camera and therefore expose. It would therefore expose the, the trajectory, you know, brighter, you know, because it was coming slower. It had more time to to spend on its exposure across the, the, the film, you know. So it got really sophisticated. <laughs> and this was this this was also before Photoshop. You know, I had to develop yeah. all this stuff. But with Psychedelic Furs, it was like a precursor. Mm -hmm. A real precursor that cover to uh, to uh, the computers. Even if I I started to imagine, you know, the, the computers. I didn't know anything about computers. They didn't exist in my world really until I first saw them um, working on Broadgate at the Architects uh, Studio in Chicago. I saw my first computer, eighty five or something, eighty six. Broadgate was quite a, a big project for you, wasn't it? It was certainly one of uh, a very notable product project that, that you took on. Yeah, uh, it was massive. Um, obviously, I got sort of a history then. Uh, I, you know, I got the power book had come out. I was all over. I mean, Maggie Thatcher had made business sexy. I was over all the annual reports. <laughs> she, she did. She, she said, you know, she wanted to make it sexy. God almighty, try and make business sexy. Um and uh, I was approached by the property developer, Peter Davenport and Associates, who were a design group that had the Broadgate project. Broadgate was uh, was where the stock market, they say, exploded. In other words, it came out of the stock market down Trent Needle Street and went on everybody's computers around around uh, the, the world or around Britain, whatever, and went handled in. Uh, the stocks and shares. I don't know anything about stocks and shares. And uh, I came up with uh, two basic ideas. I can't stress that basic thought patterns are really important in photography. Don't try and think. Obviously, some of these light machines, that they are sophisticated on top of basic thought pattern. But the basic thought should always be really basic. And uh, the one th the thought I had was that the Big Bang Day was going to come in October. Mm -hmm. I can't remember now, 26 or something, 1986, I think. I, I saw it such a long time ago. And I went to Peter Danford. I said, uh, Pete, uh, uh, in my black country, maybe, uh, I think we should explode a firework. Um, and he went, well, that's a big bang day, firework. Oh, yeah, maybe we should. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? It, like, really hurts, you know. <laughs> and um, we did. We exploded the biggest firework available to mankind, actually, <laughs> 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 apart from a nuclear bomb. Um, this firework, this firework was the, the client had tremendous belief in us, really, because he booked the center spread of the Financial Times on Big Bang Day, which I can't remember whether it cost 48,000 in 1986, whatever it was. It's a lot of money. I mean, you're probably talking half a million or getting, or not half a million, sorry, a quarter of a million or 200,000 or something ridiculous. Um, and we had a practice day. We fired different fireworks into in Broadgate. We fired like Spanish, Chinese, Maltese, English. 
and looking at the structures of, of the of the firework you know that we liked and we decided to use a spanish firework because it was like a, it just went bang just like no aesthetic to it at all just like bang a big massive explosion like you get at the end of a, a display and on the, the the last day of the year or, or the, at midnight on the first of january finish the firework display off but the only problem is with it we were going to let it off 100 feet in the air you know what i mean not like a three or 400 feet directly up in the sky <laughs> and uh i i I decided on the spot. I took a photograph of the space. It was on practice day one week earlier. Mm. And um, it was like the coming of Christ. I'd used a, a the crosshair. There was a big digital crane that, that was actually fabulously, uh, can we say, uh, looking at me like the crosshairs, like a crucifix in the sky. Uh, sorry, on the, uh, got up from the ground, in, in, you know, in the air, a hundred mm. odd feet, whatever. It was a gantry crane, you know, like these side cranes. And it exploded right on the, the crosshairs, you know, where the, mm. the, the crucifix. And it was like a woodcut of Christ on the cross, like a big explosion of woodcut. And I was, again, I was almost, can we say, wanting to use my, my, my the toilet as my trousers, <laughs> you know, my trousers as a toilet. <laughs> I could not believe it. I just couldn't. I, I took my breath away. It was like the coming of Christ, you know. So, therefore... I asked the guy who was launching the firework to to make a note of the angle, the, exactly how his, the trajectory was, because he's going to come back and repeat that with that, Sp that Spanish mortar. It was a Spanish mortar, like a big turnip that you drop down a tube, run away, and bang. <laughs> <laughs> really, really big, really very big. Anyway, comes the big bang day, um, the firework day, and uh, it was torrential rain. Oh. Torrential, <laughs> and there were trucks of lights coming in, big pantechnicans full of lights, like lighting men, like little ants. They were all over the site. We started at eight o'clock. All the buildings were lights were put in the buildings, um, lights were put in the foundations in the ground. There were searchlights put there. There were a big, big twenty uh, k, I think, HMI up in the atrium at the top of the the, the main building on the site. But the rain kept on coming down and coming down. It would not stop. It was torrential rain. I had three cameras. I had um, I had a Sinar 5.4 camera. I had um, a Hasselblad, which inappropriate really, but it was my safety device, square image in the center. And then amateur photographer gave me the cheapest camera um, known to man, which was a Practica, 30 pounds it was. <laughs> You know those Eastern European mm -hmm. things. I, oh, yes. I started my, I started my career on it. Anyway, all these three cameras we film in, and then we set all the lights up, waiting for it to get dark. It was like probably uh, it was well, it was October, and uh, so it got dark quite early. So we started setting up the lights up, turn the lights on, go like that, blah blah blah. Camera checks on everything, checks for the firework man. But we had a letter saying that if we broke any window or cracked any pane of glass in Broadgate, which was still pretty big at the time, and although not complete by any stretch, we would have to pay for it. <laughs> now, I think that they, we, we did the wrong thing, actually. I think we'd informed the, um, the firework man, and he got the chilly willies, you know what <laughs> I mean? He got all that willy. 
and we informed all the police forces, uh, police force, sorry, City of London Police Force, that we're going to do this. And <coughs> so we'll get their, their permission, you know, that they weren't. And it was the RIRA at the time, by the way. <laughs> so that was a bit of another complexity to it. And uh, so we fired the first one off. Mm, probably not absolutely right. Uh, but the rain was coming down and the lights were exploding in the foundations of the ground pointing upwards. The, the water was sitting on top of the lenses of the lights, like uh, 4K HMIs, whatever they were. And uh, it was cracking the glasses and they were blowing up, you know, uh, you know, the, the releasing, uh, you know, the, the glass release all the insides. And anyway, cut a long story short, we had lights, lights everywhere. And, um, and then I fired another one, sort of got it right. And then the police arrived. <laughs> so, and obviously Peter Dunbar went over to talk to them. And apparently, there was a there was a, 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 a Italian restaurant near the the site where uh, he had an injunction any any noise after nine thirty, and he could shut the whole site down. Oh no! Oh no! I fired two, and they're not right, you know, and it's all <laughs> wrong. And the police are going to shut the site down, and they say if you fire any more, we're going to come and take you away. So they went. They went away. I fired another five, actually. <laughs> and they came back. They came back. <laughs> oh, they, did, they came back, did they? That's bizarre. Yeah, they came back, and uh, to give you an example of the power of that firework was they could hear it here in Rotherhide, which at least four miles away is. <laughs> they could hear that bang. And also Peter, who is the main, he's dressed in white, is in front of the camera, as you can yeah. see he felt the pressure on his face and the pressure on <laughs> all his outfit flapped in the pressure you know what i mean the, 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 the mm. pressure the wind from the from the firework exploding because it was only like 80 100 feet in the air you know this massive firework so i, I got these sheets all the lighting men were covered in mud and clay it was christened the um the battle of the somme in fact that was what I was trying to do because if you can see all the all the all the surveyors' levels down on the ground, they've all got crosses. They're all crosses, like uh, you know their levels, they're almost mm. like uh, graves actually. Yeah. And um, the rain coming down in front of the the HMI in the top of atrium there, it's all like steam and like all the rains falling in the long exposure. Because obviously, like I open the camera, like click, boom, the fire would go up. Click, click, click as the firework trajectory is going up. Click as the you know the camera's still open. It fires the firework, and then the firework starts to fragment as it breaks away into a massive floral shape, and then shut the camera down. You know, so it's like quite a long exposure I had to get right, and to only have seven goes at it. Uh, so I had to go to the lab the next morning, first thing, and deliver the seven sheets of film hoping and praying to god that it worked and because uh, the, the the financial times was waiting to insert it on the central center two pages uh, mm. the next morning that's how it was and uh, then they then the, the men you know i mean like the, i think it was 125,000 the picture was in 1986 gosh 
costing you know 125 i mean mm. like it's like a quarter of a million or half a million now like yeah. photograph and i had seven exposures it was a big one but then we went on to do something more extraordinary do you want me to carry on talking about it we can no can. you crack on yeah, absolutely yeah. Okay. fascinating yes, definitely <laughs> i was up in uh, i was up in uh, for a new society I, I liked working on new society uh, i was up in sheffield photographing a um the, the death of Sheffield, i.e. the cutlery industry. I mean, mm. Thatcher had destroyed all the industry, really. I mean, sh you know, sh it's all in ruins, the cutlery industry in Sheffield. And I I, uh, I got a band to build a, a sculpture, uh, a skull, a, a sculling skull, you know, a skeleton that sat up and was built of, built of elements from, can we say, like... Um, uh, what's the right way to reinforce concrete steel and things like that like fragments mm. of mm. a destroyed building it sits in the center of the picture on in this complete derelict factory you know destroyed factory just brick on them just bricks and oh it's horrible and i was photographing up there when i got a, again another phone call from peter davenport who's as i said earlier he's working he did the work on all the all the work i worked on for um for Broadgate, and uh, he said, we've got a, a, a really difficult shoot to do a brochure on. Uh, he said, uh, I've, you've got, I've got to show the model. I, everyone has a model of the whole site, how it's going to be when it's finished. I've got to show the site as it exists at the moment. And I've got to show the central ice rink at Broadgate as well, which they've finished. It was an element of Broadgate that was finished early, it already built. I'm going to show those three things for a brochure for Prince Charles to come and open the central ice rink at Broadgate. So he said, uh, can I have a meeting with you? I said, I'm up in Sheffield. Uh, he said, can you come down now, quick? <laughs> so I, I jumped on, everyone else came down in a car. Uh, I, I jumped on a train in Sheffield and went down to the old St Pancras station, 1986, I think it was. Uh, maybe, maybe, Big Bang was 85, I can't remember. Uh, I have to look it up on the internet. And uh, and I sat down with him. And as I was coming down the train from from Sheffield to London to St Pancras, I had the idea. I had the idea like I used to have ideas when I travelled by train in the 70s because I didn't have a car in most of the 70s. I used to do editorial jobs by going on the train and things. And I sat in my seat on the train and I had the idea came to me. I sat down and had a coffee or whatever with Peter at uh, St Pancras Station. Uh, I got when I got there, two and a quarter hours it takes or whatever. And I said, "I've got the idea, Pete." He said, "What is that?" I said, "Well, one day, um, an executive who was trying to flog all the uh, all the business, you know, people to move into Broadgate, the office blocks, to all the stockbrokers to move in, the, the hedge funds, and all that sort of business." He leans over to sell these office space in the in the model of the Broadgate, that is, and his tie goes into the model. Mm. And then exactly where the model the tie falls in the model of Broadgate, it actually comes down in exactly the right place in the city of London. Surrealism, this is. And this continued all the way through the project. The site, you know, the guy leans into another part of the model. His tie, you know, gentlemen's ties just fall, you know, as they lean over, leant into the model. 
And then eventually, because the, the bosses are getting crazy about this tide falling out of the sky, they send a, a group of, of uh, workmen to capture the tie and pull it out of the sky because they don't want the, the, the whole of Broadgate to stop work. Everyone's looking up at this tie coming down. So um, so the, the workers go and they pull it out of the sky and it falls over a, 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 a bishop's gate, over traffic, over a bus, over a, over a Range Rover, over cars, because the, the workers have pulled it out of the sky, like an Iwo Jima thing. And then they carry it. They carry it... Uh, themselves they carry it into the central ice rink and then the, the executive realizes he's lost his tie because he can look down into the model and he can see his tie in the model so it takes a reverse really in the model and in fact i had students from john cass school of art this all digital world by the way it had to be in the camera and um and they're all and I, and nick williamson who's my friend who ran uh, the school of photography at uh, John Cass in Whitechapel, Whitechapel. He got all his students, well, some of his students to come. I dressed them up as workers, white hats and overalls. And they carry the tie, which was 40 feet long, by the way, by 20 feet wide. It came in its own uh, truck. <laughs> uh, I had a car, a 40 foot by 20 foot wow. tie I made. It came in a truck. And they carried it into the central ice rink. And they put it down as a magic car, you know, as a, a red carpet. Uh, so he, the executive came down from upstairs where the model was, and then he walked up the red carpet, a spotted red carpet, and and, and skated on the outdoor ice rink. It was an incredible project. Uh, to the eighties was a magic time, wasn't it? The, that <laughs> that those two photographs I explained to you are the biggest corporate photography that ever been done in the world. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> No one was crazy. No one was cra no one as crazy as me would have ever come up with that, or, or had a person like Peter Davenport to to follow my, follow my ideas, or uh, no one would be crazy enough to do Black Country Dada, the book that I'm doing now in a pandemic. You know. Yeah. Uh, but should we let's, should we talk about <coughs> that a lot more specifically? Um, yeah, yeah. So. Was this something that you had got on in your plan to do anyway, or is this something that this year has really brought to the forefront? Because let's face it, nobody's doing anything much else other than <laughs> reflecting back. Yeah, I mean, I've, I again, as I as I've stressed all through this conversation that we've had, basic thought patterns. There's not going to be any workaround. Could be months. Could could be a year. Could be more than a year. I don't know. No one knows. I'm crazily uh, I'm a hard-working man, which I, I mentioned also earlier in the conversation. Mm. I've got to occupy myself. I'll go crazy if I'm not really active. I've got to do something. And uh, I did volume one, which was called The Black Kingdom, uh, with Dowie Lewis, as I said, 212, 213. This is volume two, Black Country Dada, into uh, 220. And... Um, I decided I'm going to sit down now every single day and write about my photographic life mm. in the in the in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, they are like me, a bit crazy, I suppose, but they are really the crazy, crazy, very, very uh, 
um, good time to good times to write about all the craziness, all the the drugs we took. By the way, I mean, that's <laughs> really all, <in> <laughs> all that's having just, dis- having just discussed the massive tie going around Roger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, all the things like, going to our college. You know, our college at the end of the seventies. At the end of flower power, all that stuff, and all the the seventies and eighties crazy times, you know, where people were doing crazy things, and and money was available to do these things, and uh, so it was a very it's a very rich period to write about, mm. full of full of you know, not everyone going back home and meet the wife and have nice supper and go to bed. <laughs> it's like really crazy, absolutely like wow. I mean. What can I say? And so it's all in the book, that craziness, the things that people did, the things that photographers that I know did, you know, all the sort of – it's all in the book. It's a fascinating read, I have to say that, don't I? I think it is. Uh, I uh, don't think there's going to be any doubting that. So for, yeah. pe- for people who want to go and check this out, so uh, it will, obviously there will be a link in the show notes for this, but they need to be searching – Brian Griffin, Black Country, Dada, D-A-D-A. Oh, what, uh, this is probably a really stupid question, but I'm not a well-informed person. Uh, I, I can figure out why the Black Country, or why the Dada. Right, there's two reasons, actually. Um, one reason is the fact I, I like the art movement, Dada. I like surrealism. I like the the precursor to surrealism, maybe. Mm. Prior to surrealism was the Dada movement. And secondly... Uh, my daughter always called me Dada. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so I I called it. I'm from the black black country Dada. Um, the first book is called The Black Kingdom, because the Chinese. When I had a show of my black country work, uh, sorry, my black first book of the black country, they they didn't understand black country, so they called it the Black Kingdom in Beijing. My exhibition, so I took that title for that. Um, yeah, so therefore, because my daughter called me Dada, and um, and uh, yeah, I, I like the Dada movement. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm a great fan of Man Ray. I think he was a, a tremendous photographer. Of course, I, um, I think I've done some things equivalent to his work. Uh, certainly, um, uh, he, he's one of the motivators of me in photography because I'm very much a I, again, I, 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 I'm pursuing what I said to you earlier. Uh, is that I'm a photographer, but I use photography for ideas, capturing ideas, you know, for, for like capturing my ideas. Mm. It's a capture mechanism, you know. It's, it's like a capture mechanism, um, a mechanism to capture something, an idea. Um yeah. As as well as the book, which is obviously the thing which people should be going to pledge to support. Um, you've also got things on your Kickstarter, like the postcard sets. You've got postcard set for um, Depeche Mode, uh, album covers you've done, and photographs, and Echo and the Bunny Man as well. Um, I did love, I was looking at one of your pictures earlier, one of your album covers, um, thought, hang on, I, think, I can't remember which one it is now, um, with the uh, swan wrapped up in cellophane hang on a second i'm trying to read that <laughs> depeche I, mode one. Uh, yes uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Well, depeche mode yeah i just loved i just loved you know you were talking about where your ideas come from and, and your description was, i have no idea where this idea came from but somehow you ended up with a cellophane wrapped swan <laughs> it's like well i have no idea <laughs> again I think, it was the 80s <laughs> it was the 80s and secondly uh, 
I think I wanted to do, uh, I was really into experimenting <coughs> on, on emotions. <coughs> Excuse me, coughing. And uh, I can't, I don't know where the idea came from. Mm. I mean, Depeche Mode were absolutely aghast at that cover. <laughs> but you know, but the, the, the thing is, the thing is, is that those sort of covers become incredibly fashionable, incredibly sought after these days you know like mm. a, a, like 40 years later you know people i mean i sell lo loads of that album cover um as a poster or as a fine print uh loads of it because they they love it i mean um in fact i quite like it now as well mm. um but depeche mode was a real real good one for me because i wanted to get r really good at, at lighting people outdoors you know mixing flash uh with daylight um i really wanted to become an expert at that obviously i i looked at a lot of painting i mean you know obviously that's the influence and uh depeche mode knew i i, I loved the worker photographing the worker daniel miller who was the the head of mute records and the manager of depeche mode at the time uh knew i did he became a good friend and um and the extraordinary thing is they gave me the second album to do, which was a Broken Frame. Mm. And Broken Frame became probably the most famous, apart from The Afghan uh, Child by uh, by uh, Steve McCurry, uh, probably the most famous photograph on earth, you know, uh, Broken Frame. It was yeah. the front cover of life, as you quite rightly said. And uh, endless people want to print of it. Mm. I mean, people just want to hang it on their wall, whatever size it is. Some people have got... Uh, you know, Mike, as you know full well, Mike, the greatest photograph printer in the Europe, professional printer. Uh, hello, Mike. I love you. You know I do. I've worked <laughs> with him for 23 years now. Um, and uh, what was I going to say about Mike, apart from being a great printer? <laughs> yeah, this is Mike, Mike Crawford, we should say, who we've spoken <laughs> uh, across, who is as a, light, a delight. Lighthouse yes. Darkroom. He's a delight. Fantastic man. And um, um. hello, Mike. Lighthouse Darkroom. <laughs> Everybody go to Lighthouse Darkroom. Um, and uh, so they gave me another cover to do, which got mm. eventually became the front cover of Life, became the, the, the greatest photograph taken in 1983 in Britain. I dressed up as the Albert Hall, walked on the stage of the Albert Hall in front of 3,000 people and shook hands with um, with Michael Aspel and took a took a uh, a pencil dnad pencil out of his hand he was like mouth open eyes as wide as anything you know what i mean as if he'd seen a ghost <laughs> and I, I i take a pencil out of his hand and put it back in the hall and face all the people it wasn't a daft thing to do really i thought i, I rationalized that i thought it was really an interesting dadaist again dadaist moment and also then i was on news at 10 the next night you know like 15 I was on about three four minutes on news at 10 i mean that was before the internet social network uh, helping to uh, helping to forge your career um and th that was a great photograph where you know uh using flash and valuable light and then i went on to do construction time again which i think is the great one i mean i know broken frames album covers God is the greatest, but construction time. There's so many great pictures. We went up the top of a mountain. At that time, I'm just going to finish off with this last little bit. Uh, the, the one thing I've, I, I realized that people who are interested in flash and, and available light 
mixing both of them mm. if you want portable i mean there are some great great portable flash now i mean battery power now is fantastic but then multi-blitz did battery power but it was like you had to get the photograph almost next to the person you know what i mean and flag it so it doesn't flare you know in order to get an exposure and a decent depth of field with uh you know uh, 64 asa ectochrome and um but uh normans the americans had invented the norman flash guns they were like steel things they were like packs like like packs that you took over your shoulder and yet it had a wonderful quality of light from the reflector that they had around the flash tube and that's what i used up in the um up in uh up in, up in the mountains i took them but we took the sledgehammer from uh from rotherhide here and <laughs> the first thing that we wrapped it up in a plastic bag the sledgehammer you know and the first thing that came out of the uh, onto the carousel in um and it was like one of those carousels where it spews things out from above <laughs> down onto it as opposed to <laughs> spewing things out from uh. above uh, below and then trickling around uh, a lovely uh, carousel of uh, of your your baggage it came out from above and it hit that hit the carousel without an enormous bang <laughs> and i looked across the other side of the carousel were three swiss policemen <laughs> went, oh no <laughs> anyway i'll finish off with that we went up the top of a mountain up a mountain and uh, took that picture so it's not photoshop it's actually real yeah that's awesome um I I know that I'm I'm a hundred percent that before we let you go, Claire and John have questions they would want to ask you. Um, so I want to I want to see some time to them quickly before we let you disappear, Brian. So Claire, what what would you like to ask Brian? Oh, about? Okay. yeah, it's been fascinating listening to you, Brian. Um, because I was thinking uh, you're like an inventor as well as a photographer, and I was thinking listening to what you're saying as well about double exposures and your love of maths. Because I always think of double exposures are like visual mathematics mm. um one of the things i was going to ask you actually was when you work when you because you've worked with so many different people um do you come up with all the ideas or is it different with different people or do some of them when they i don't know say like when you worked with iggy pop or that picture of donald sutherland in his in the in the savoy with the chair mm. over his head did you come up with that or do so or do people do you bounce ideas off each other you know for instance how who who arrived at that image of like donald sutherland yeah no i was intrigued <laughs> mm. well um what happened was that um the, these film stars who you know they, they they do the rounds when they're making a film they you know they yeah. they see like one magazine after the other in a way mm. uh, donald was staying in a suite in the savoy hotel famous hotel in london uh we all must know it people in england it's mm. used to be known as the most expensive hotel at the time and uh, i thought of something how to get donald um i thought well i know because i've been in the savoy before photographing other famous people because uh, any famous people can afford to stay there now, <coughs> um, <coughs> was that uh, they have an umbrella near the door that each well, they did then that each you know mm. guest could could take with him uh, out in the rain in london rain and i i thought there's a 50 percent chance at least 
that he's superstitious and he won't open the umbrella. Mm. So when he when he refuses what I ask him, yeah. then he will expect me to come up with a second solution. And he, <laughs> he, he may be I'll accept my second because he's defeated me once. He won't want to defeat me twice <laughs> in the question. Possibly. It's all hypothetical at that time. And uh, so I went upstairs with my assistant. <clears throat> and I uh, <clears throat> and uh, Donald welcomed me in. Uh, obviously, I was been showing up there probably by a hotel, yeah, hotel attendant. Uh, and I said, uh, he said, okay, how do you want me then? And I said, would you uh, have the umbrella, uh, Donald? And he went, no way will I have the umbrella. <laughs> no way. So I answered him really quickly. I didn't like give him time to think nothing. I said, okay, you can have the pillar or the chair, the pillow, sorry, or the chair. He said, well, obviously he took the easy option, you know. I'll take the chair, he said. And I said, okay. Okay, fair enough. Now, he had to go and be interviewed. It was for the Sunday Telegraph magazine, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, he had to go into a, a joining room of, of his suite uh, to be interviewed in private. Um, he was interviewed and he came out. And um, I'm just thinking she was a famous journalist and she said to me quietly, I didn't get anything out of him. I didn't get a thing out of him. And I said, okay, Donald, but we've been practicing what we do while he was in that uh, in that um, adjoining room. We'd worked it out. He said, my assistant would get the chair that he wants mm. and we'd turn it upside down and hang it above his head. My assistant would hold the chair behind him and hang it above his head. So he came, he came in. And uh, I said, okay, Donald, we're ready. Yeah, no, no problem, you know, not keeping him ready. Get right on with it straight away. No chance to rethink, no chance to have thoughts, nothing, straight in there. Mm. And because um, you have to, you have to understand the psychology of things. You have to try and comprehend how to work the subject, mm. how to work on the psychology or oh, everything. Like, oh. And uh, so he got there and he saw that then the assistant picked the chair up and put it above his head. <laughs> he just went, holy shit. <laughs> like, and, uh, and he was great, actually. He was great. Because uh -huh. what, he, what, what he did then, he just got his hair. I didn't, I didn't think of this idea. Because the subject always puts the magic into the photograph that you have never, ever thought of. Mm. Just that 10% that makes all the difference. And he just grabbed his hair and he went, and I just went, click, you know, <coughs> click, 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 obviously two rolls. I always shot two rolls ah. on the subject because I thought if the lab buggers one, they can't bother two of you. That's good thinking. Um, so then for Donald then said to me, and he said to the journalist, I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to shoot him. He was going to shoot me. <laughs> and he jokingly, hopefully. Uh, don't think he carries firearms. That was one. What was the other? That was the. What was the other one that you asked? You asked Donna, and you asked for something else, did you? No, I, I was intrigued by that picture, and I was. I mean, you, for me, you can really see like your surrealist influences in a lot of your work, and I think a lot of your work is quite cinematic and it's stylish. Mm. I mean, even what do you call it? That traffic island picture. Love that picture. 
Oh, it's uh, one of my favourites. Yeah, I love Very that. quiet, really. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I mean, it's a great one. It's, it's for sale, actually, really cheap on uh, my Kickstarter. You can go in there and buy it. I'll, I'll have it. Look, I'll, I'll do it's that. It's like nothing compared to how much it normally... I mean, immediately at the end of this Kickstarter, it's like, it, it got to happen, this book. It had no... It got to happen that I charge ridiculous amounts of money for some of my best work. So people should go in and buy them because immediately after the last day of Kickstarter, mm. it starts to go up into the thousands, all of it. But at the moment, it's in just a few hundreds, you know. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So we need, so, to, so we need to go. No, I, I love that image and, and a lot of your work. It's very cinematic. Well, that's, that, I read you cite you know, David Lynch as an influence. Yeah, well, well actually, the influence on that. Yeah. That photograph is by a, a German romantic artist of the late 18th, early 19th century, mm. who I was really influenced by, called Caspar David Friedrich. He, if you look at a Friedrich painting, which they yeah. nothing, they don't, they haven't got roundabouts, concrete roundabouts. That, I didn't have concrete then, I don't think, uh, in uh, 1780 or 1790. Um, uh, you'll see the influence of Friedrich. But anyway, David Lynch. Um, no, I, I think that David Lynch, it really shocked me about David Lynch because I went to see, when um, when Razorhead happened in London, mm, mm. they said, Brian, have you seen Razorhead? I said, no, I haven't. I don't even know who David Lynch is, by the way. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know who he was. And I went to see a Razorhead and I realised that his work was the same as mine or similar mm. to mine. We just like met, you know, like uh, subliminally. We just met, you know, by something in the ether, you know, uh, yeah. came together with similarities. But I did not know David Lynch, and I until I saw a razor head. And did, and any any other parts of or aspects of his work influence you as time's gone on, or his photographs? Because he does a lot of he does good photographs. Mm -hmm. His um, nudes and smoke pictures are really good, and his. I, I love his use of lighting. Or was a razor head the real the real um, germ of what influenced you? Yeah, I think it or was. I, I, I like well, well. In fact, it's not absolutely true because I like Wild at Heart as well. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I really like Wild at Heart. I, I, I obviously I, I loved Razor Head. I like Wild at Heart. Um, uh, yeah. I, I sort of, I, I, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I looked through, in the early part of my career, way back in the uh, early 70s, 72 to 74, for instance, film did play a major part in, in influencing me, I think. Mm. But then I left it. I, I left it and went into painting and sculpture more so than, because yeah. like for social realism in the sense of, uh, of the, the reaper, you know, the cornfield uh, and uh, social realism as... as uh, you know, uh, in in um, in Russia, as influenced a lot by Russia. In fact, in the late seventies, in fact, post punk, I I, I mean, um, constructivism and uh, played a major part. Russian photography mm. played a major part in post punk, really, as opposed to punk. Uh, that was around in the late seventies. It's all been painting and and and, uh, and and sculpture, really, for me, since those early days. But then with flashes of whether it's a David Lynch, whether it's a whether it's a, um, a Le Samurai by Jean Pierre Melville, or uh, yeah. the, the Stalker by um, 
by uh, uh, by uh, Tarkovsky. Yeah, yeah, like you know, there are it is there is there is drip drips of things. I all can the way see through. that, and you, yeah, I can see that as well. Yeah, fascinating. John, what about you? I'm sure you must have questions. Oh God, ton of questions, <laughs> but I. <laughs> um, I'm quite interested in your thoughts on the kind of state of photography at the moment. So a lot of the work that you've talked about tonight um, and you're, you're putting in your book was made during a time when print was the, the only option. You know, they were done for editorial, for newspapers, for album covers. Um, and these days, like newspapers are shutting down magazines stop printing like the i think the importance of the album cover for an artist is diminishing significantly do you think there's a place for the sort of photography that you create um, in this modern age mm. it's very difficult i mean to be really really good at uh, as a photographer to be really really good apart from obviously having natural talent to start with that makes your work quite interesting but being a professional photographer is the only way to truly, truly develop uh, your photographic eye or photographic art, rather. Uh, mm. I, I, you know, because you keep on doing it constantly through the year after year. And when it builds up to someone like my, mine, like it builds up to nearly 50 years of doing it, you know, mm. of executing it, going down cul-de-sacs, coming back down the, from the cul-de-sac, finding out what not to do, what to do, what's mm. wrong, like sorting your mind out, developing your head by keeping on doing it. And in those days, I mean, photography wasn't lazy. I mean, like it, it can be lazy today where you have a computer in front of your eye, you know, which in a way, creates laziness. I mean, digital photography is a brilliant thing to do, to use the quality of the digitalization of photography. Like, for instance, using, well, flash, electronic flash, for instance, and having the divisions of exposures so much, so smaller than we used to have a clunk click, we'd say, in the old days of half stops or whatever. Uh, you can get your, your, your lighting and everything beautiful, you know, and something, and then... And you can keep on inspecting it and build your lighting up so you can get nearer to painting. Whilst in my day, it was really difficult to 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 get near the uh, the uh, you know to get near a painting and subtlety of tone, tone and uh, uh, shadow. Oh, sorry, in terms of uh, depth of, uh, of highlights and, and the shadows and things. And um, but I think digitalization has actually created a laziness in photography helped to create it and two has helped people to accept a photograph as being as being able to to work with it so as, as working you know as a, a, a function it works you know a, a bad photograph works these days Mm -hmm. uh, I think so that's started to it but what I, I, I do find really interesting is that young photographers of today are going back into film it's wonderful to see that happen it requires a lot more effort film does um, you know it requires a lot more concentration a lot more intense thought pattern intense patience all sorts of human qualities that digital photography takes away a lot of mm -hmm. The qualities that human beings have yeah. when using a camera that can that they can have when using a camera yeah. i think really you know they put it on a tripod look at things study it meditate what you're going to take think about it 
it's like click look in the back window oh god you know how many times you see a person look in the back window people photograph me <coughs> and constantly roaming around me looking in the back window all the time <coughs> i know i mean i i i'm a digital photographer i, I use digital photography a lot uh, as well as analog photography um so what, what projects are you working on at the moment like covid accepting but like what I, what were you working on before covid uh i was trying to develop myself uh, as i tried to develop myself in 72 try to develop myself in 73 74 75 76 77 78 79, 19, uh, <laughs> i i wanted to be a fashion photographer and I've been getting fashion um, photography. I'm, I'm doing fashion photography, where all those top shelf, you know, magazines that you see littered, you know, there's all those glosses in the ten pound a time, with photographs in, uh, working for them really, of no fee, you know, no fee at all, uh, expenses maybe, and doing some creative work, working with interesting people interesting uh, fashion designers interesting uh, makeup artists interesting hairstylists everybody in that world is really great time they're having great fun they're not doing their commercial stuff which is like look in the back of the camera photography isn't it most of it uh click 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 uh, you know 50 setups a day you know um and uh, i'm doing that i'm working for like I, i've worked for 10 minutes 10 men um and then i worked on uh we, we worked on uh, ultra magazine uh, as a model <laughs> uh worked on uh, pilot magazine worked on uh what's the other one ultra uh, magazine as a uh, getting features in. oh god i can't think of the, 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 all the people and then I, I did a sculpture um done some sculpture uh, called the tram man where I've, I've done a sculpture of a of a, a, a tram driver, you know the old trams down the railways, you know, sort yeah. of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, where he's wearing a big he's wearing a big um, tram rail on top of his head, and it, 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 it fits <laughs> to a, it fits to a low crowd crash helmet like the motorcycle racers used to wear in the late forties or whatever, you know, with like the like a basin head, you know, it fits on a tram rail on top. Uh, I did a sculpture and a set of images for that. Uh, I don't know. I'm just kidding. but since COVID, nah. I haven't taken a photograph since March. I've uh, been working on this book. Really, mm -hmm. uh, I haven't had the opportunity to take a photograph. Uh, well, actually, I have. I have had the opportunity, but uh, I, I've just done this book. This book means everything to me. It seems like time well spent, Brian. It really does. Because um... I can go back to doing my pictures after. You know, when I go wait until march i've got another five months working on it because the printing the designing the printing of the book i've been to printers to you know to sort out what printer i'd like to use uh designers i'm using like there's a place called the the cafeteria in sheffield doing a fantastic job for me i'm getting uh, designing the book uh, there's a lot of work to do and then boxing it all up. I'm self-publishing it, by the way. I don't have a publisher. I'll be sticking the labels on, signing the copies, putting the prints in the sleeves, walking down to the post office or getting a courier to come <laughs> pick them all up. <laughs> there are 300 and odd books I've got to do, you know, and I'm having really Mike's printing prints for me, everything like that. And Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of work. I think it's really exciting, and as you said, the the Kickstarter is not only an opportunity for people to get their hands on this book, um, 
but also to get their hand on prints which mike's going to be making for you uh at some yeah. stunning prints of your work uh, several of which yeah. we've talked about this evening at uh, as you know he's, he's a, as you know he's a great printer so they're going to have the finest prints you know mm. he's yeah. like a world-class printer so yeah they're going to have great work so people should absolutely go and check this out. And there's so much stuff that we haven't touched on or haven't gone into any depth on this evening. There's so much to go to in this book. I mean, we didn't even mention the fact that you went to you went to university with Martin Carp, Martin Parr and Daniel Meadows. You know, there are there are two people who've sort of just randomly been in the background there, and all the people who've been involved with this. There's so much stuff there because um, it, it tracks your life from '69 up till uh, 1990. Is that right? No. Uh, it does, yeah. 69 to 1990, leaving home, going to art college, coming down to London and working as a photographer till 1990. I'm still working as a photographer, but this is volume two, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the one thing I think is a shame that's just missing the cutoff is the point in, I think it's 1991, where you, um, because you, you're, as you mentioned before, about going dressed up to the awards thing, um, you, you're quite a performer yourself. And uh, there is a great video of you presenting a slideshow of your work uh, whilst doing a uh, beat poetry um it's from mm. from the early 90s it's pretty great i will put yeah. a link to it in the show um and it does include a, po- a poem you mentioned to us before we started recording about the pigs um so yeah. so we will share that because it's pretty great and it shows that you are uh a- an artist <laughs> not just a photographic artist but also a visual artist and, and mm. a-, a poet so um that was great Brian, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It has been supremely interesting and, um, yeah, just an absolute delight. There's so much more we could talk to you about. Uh, maybe we'll have to get you on again in the future to talk to us about more of the stuff you've done before and after uh, all the stuff we've talked about. But um, I was going to say that, part two. Part two, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's loads of stuff, loads and loads <laughs> of it. I haven't even scraped the surface, but still. Very good. We did some good points. We, we did. talked about some good things. Well, just to wrap it up then, so again, to remind everybody, they need to go to Kickstarter and search for Brian Griffin Black Country Dada, uh, which we will put in the show notes. Um, and yeah, go and check it out. And also we'll have loads of links in the show notes to Brian's work. You, you're on Instagram, that's right, and Twitter as well, aren't you, Brian? I am, yeah. So Absolutely. We'll- in my name as well I haven't got a nickname or anything that makes life a lot easier absolutely Um, uh, so yeah we'll put all of those links in I think now there's one thing we need to mention uh, before I forget Um, Rachel who sadly couldn't be with us this evening um, but she did let us know that the most recent of her Ilford videos is just about to land is that right guys? yeah tomorrow yes great yeah, so Rachel's series of darkroom um, videos, which she's been doing for Elford, the latest one of those is going to hit tomorrow, by which we mean Wednesday, so yesterday. <laughs> yeah, because time's confusing. Or is it Tuesday? Which day is it, Claire? Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Either way, it's already happened. <laughs> it's already happened. So do go and check that out. Um, John and Claire, have you got anything you need to let people know about this week? No, I don't think I have. No. No, I don't think so. I got... week, and it's been... Uh, it's really good to um have a look at what the work's been produced in polaroid week i always love it so absolutely absolutely lovely well then listeners we will leave you to get on inspired as you are i hope to go and check out brian's work and specifically his kickstarter we will be back with you next week until then thank you very much for listening and goodbye bye goodbye